Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Christ Community. My name is Brent Nelson, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood campus. And I'm excited because today we're kicking off the Advent season, and I love this time of year. I love singing classic Christmas hymns, which we'll get to later today. I love singing them for worship. I love the decorations that we put up on, at church here and in our homes. And I love the anticipation that comes with this season as we wait for Christmas, the, the day when we celebrate our Savior's birth. And today we're starting a new series that we'll be in throughout the Advent season. It's going to help us connect to the story of Jesus' birth. We're calling the series, He Shall Be Called. And we'll be looking at some of the names of God um, that are in the Old Testament that connect to the birth of Jesus in the Christmas story. Now, Christ community, we think that names are really important. That's uh, why we ask you to put a name tag on when you come in. We've got them out on the tables out there. Our names are part of our identity and we want to recognize that and value that together as a community. And for some of us, our names carry special meaning. Um, as far as I know, my name isn't particularly significant, though. Um, as far as I know, my parents saw my name in a baby, baby names book somewhere, and they thought it sounded good, and they, they gave me the name Brent. Um, never mind that people will forever be calling me Brett or Trent or Grant or almost anything but my actual name for my whole life. So thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, but while my first name isn't particularly significant, uh, my last name carries a, a bit more meaning. Right? It connects me to a particular, a particular family, my parents, my siblings, and aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, it, it also connects me to a family history, you know, a history that goes all the way back to another continent. So my last name, Nelson, then, is, is, not, is not meaningless. It carries a story that tells a little bit about me. But there are actually more names that we call each other than what is listed on our birth certificate. And the names that are not on our birth certificate can often be the ones that carry the most meaning. Consider the meaning conveyed by these names that we call each other. Mom, 
dad, grandpa, grandma, sweetheart, honey, buddy, moron, idiot. <laughs> we also give each other, each other titles like uh, sir or ma'am, doctor, professor, officer, mayor, pastor. And these names and titles, they can tell a powerful story about relationships, about how we're related to each other, and they can convey anything from deep intimacy to stiff formality to seething contempt. In the Bible, names often tell us something important about a, a, a person's character or about their role in the story. For example, in Genesis, uh, each of Jacob's 12 sons has a name that's relevant to the situation in which they were born. Jesus, he renames his disciple Simon as Peter, which, which means rock, because Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah is the foundation on which Jesus will build his church. And Jesus' own name means Yahweh saves, so that his name itself tells what God is going to do through him. And there are dozens of different uh, names or titles for God in the Bible. Of course, we're not going to cover all of them in this series, but, but each one is important because it reveals something about God's character. Did you notice all of the names or titles for God in the scripture reading this morning? Depending on how you count them, there are as many as eight different names of God in just those 10 verses. They were God, the Lord, Jesus, Son of the Most High, Lord God, Holy Spirit, Most High, and Son of God. Eight names in just 10 verses. And each one tells us something important about who God is and who Mary's baby will be. And the significance of each one is rooted in the Old Testament. And so today we're focusing on the name Most High, which occurred twice in our reading this morning, in verses 32 and 35. Jesus, the, the angel tells Mary, will be called Son of the Most High. And then Mary is told that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So what does Most High mean and what does it tell us about God? Well, Most High is a fairly common name for God in the Old Testament. It first occurs in Genesis 14, where uh, Abram pledges allegiance to the Lord, the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. This idea of, of allegiance that Abraham pledges to God, it's important. It's about loyalty to and worship of the God who is highest. So the big idea, that, that, that's the big idea of the name God Most High, that God Most High is worthy of our highest allegiance. And what does it mean for God to be high? Well, in the ancient world, elevated places were associated with, with divinity. So the gods lived up there in the heavens. In Greek mythology, the gods lived on Mount Olympus, right? The Babylonians, they didn't have giant mountains in the desert, but they built uh, these giant staircase pyramids called ziggurats, which were meant to reach to the heavens for the gods to come down the stairs and dwell in their earthly temples. And we see this idea in the Bible, too. Remember Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28? In a dream, he sees a staircase that, that reaches up to heaven, and angels are ascending and descending on it. And mountaintops in the Bible are also the location of pagan shrines throughout the land of Israel. That's where idolatry took place. Those are the high places where false gods such as Baal and Asherah were worshipped. So when the Bible refers to God as most high, it puts him positionally above those other so-called gods. They may dwell on mountaintops, but God most high is the highest God. And it's no coincidence that this name for God commonly occurs in contexts where Gentiles or people who worship other gods 
are present. It's a reminder that the God who is highest, who has ultimate authority to create and to judge and to save, the one who really rules the universe is not Baal or Asherah or Marduk or any other. The God who is most high above all others is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the one who deserves our highest allegiance, that is, our loyalty and our worship. And though uh, the name Most High is commonly used as a name for God in Bible stories, like Genesis 14, I think it's actually best explained uh, in, the, in the book of Psalms, where it's used 22 different times. So today, in order to better understand the name, we're going to spend most of our time in one of those Psalms. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 97, and that's where we'll spend our time. We'll come back to Luke 1 at the end. And so while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, about, about the Psalms and about this particular Psalm. So Psalm 97, it's in the section of the Psalms known as Book 4, which runs from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. I don't know if you know this, but the Psalms are or- organized into five separate books. And many scholars believe that this, this organization of, of five books in the Psalms is meant to reflect different periods of Israel's history. And many scholars think that the Psalms in Book 4 reflect an exilic perspective meaning that even if some of them were written earlier, the person or people who assembled them, they're either in exile or they're reflecting on that period of Israel's history. So the exile is a really significant moment in Israel's history. Okay, they've, been, they've been in the promised land for some amount of time. God's given them a king to rule them, David. And, but, but things kind of go downhill with David and his descendants as kings. And so uh, they, they, they lead the nation into idolatry and injustice. And so God gives them over to the consequences of their sins. He raises up the Babylonian Empire, the kind of the mightiest empire in the world at this time. And the Babylonians invade uh, Israel and they conquer Jerusalem. They knock down the wall and they, uh, they depose their king. They kill him and they take away the... Uh, uh, many of the remaining people in the land who survived this war, and they drag them off into exile into other parts of the empire. And so it's, a, it's a really important point in the biblical story. It's not the, it's not the final word in the Old Testament, but, but it's the lowest point in Israel's history. Imagine the questions that the people are asking. Does God still love us? Will he still be faithful to his promises? Is God still in control? In the ancient world, if your nation defeated my nation in a war, that was understood to mean that your God was more powerful than my God. So for the Israelites, does that mean that the Babylonian god Marduk was more powerful than Israel's God? They'd be tempted to think so. I think that to the average Israelite, things probably seemed like they were out of control. I don't want to draw it too tight of a parallel to our world today, but thinking back on the last few years, sometimes I felt like things were out of control too. And I think that when the world gets out of control, our our allegiances are tested. Or maybe it just shows where our allegiances were all along. When things seem out of control, we find out what we've been trusting in. And so the question that Israel faced during exile was, where will your allegiance be? Who will you put your trust in? Who will you worship? Psalm 97 and the other Psalms of Book 4 are an emphatic reminder that In spite of appearances to the contrary, Israel's God is still on the throne. He is still king, he's still in control, and he is worthy of our allegiance. So let's turn to Psalm 97 now. 
And we're going to have some fun with this today. Um, I, I, I love meditating on the Psalms and, and kind of picking it apart. And so we're going, to, we're going to read it slowly. The Psalms, and like all of God's Word, are meant to be meditated on. So we're going to read a little bit slowly and ask some key questions along the way. And hopefully it will bring it to life for us today. Psalm 97 opens with these words. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Now, this is a pretty incredible statement to Israelites in exile. It's a reminder that even though their last human king was deposed and killed, that the real king is still on his throne. The monarchy from David's line may have fallen, but the Lord still reigns. And what's really interesting about, to me about this psalm and the, and the ones around it is that you have 10 psalms in a row that start book four, that this is the, this is the common refrain that the Lord reigns, that he's the great king, and that he is the most high above all other kings and other gods. Those phrases are repeated here again and again and again, and that's the message of these psalms. Assembled for exiles who have lost their human king, that your human king is gone, but God still reigns. And notice in this verse the scope of God's rule. The Lord, Israel's God, reigns, but it's not just Israel that responds with rejoicing. The earth and the distant coastlands rejoice as well. In the ancient world, gods were considered to be regional. So if you you go to Egypt, then the Egyptian gods rule there. If you go to Babylon, the Babylonian gods rule there. And in Greece, the Greek gods rule there. But not this god, Israel's god, the most high god, the god of a tiny nation that's been defeated by a mighty empire. He reigns over all the earth. And the earth is called to celebrate his rule. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, uh, take a look at the, the first verse again. I want you to notice something about the poetry that we find in the Old Testament. Notice that you have two lines that are, are related to each other, okay? In this case, the second line basically repeats the first line. So it has a little bit of a different nuance. So it's, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. You kind of have an idea that's being repeated there. And this is, this is a basic feature of, of poetry in the Bible. You have two or sometimes three lines that are related to each other in some way. It's designed to make you meditate on it, to ask, what is the relationship between the first and second lines? Sometimes, like here, the lines repeat an idea in order to emphasize it, but that's not always how it will work. The point is, it's supposed to make you slow down, to meditate on the lines and engage your imagination about what the verse is saying, to ask how the lines relate to each other because in the relationship is a key part of the meaning. And I say that for two reasons. First, because uh, hopefully it will help you become better Bible readers when you encounter this, you know, 2,500-year-old poetry. Uh, But second, notice what happens in the second verse. It says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so if the key to understanding this poetry is to understand the relationship between the two lines, we've got to ask, what's the relationship between these two lines? They're clearly parallel. You have two things that are around God, and then two more things that are the foundation of his throne. But what does one, what do, what do clouds and thick darkness have to do with the other, with righteousness and justice? The poet is, is inviting us to meditate on this idea. And the temptation might be to shrug our shoulders and move on, but that's going to cause us to miss what the text 
is inviting us to see. So we can start by asking ourselves, where else in the Bible do we see clouds and darkness associated with God? The most famous place would be at Mount Sinai, where, where God gives Israel the Ten Commandments. In fact, the phrase translated clouds and thick darkness, it's pretty rare in the Bible. It only occurs a handful of times. And one of them is in Deuteronomy 5.22, which is the very first verse that follows the giving of the Ten Commandments. So God gives the Ten Commandments, and then, he says, and then it says this, Deuteronomy 5.22, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness. And so without telling us explicitly, the poet of Psalm 97 wants us to imagine ourselves in the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And he wants us to remember what happened there, the giving of the Ten Commandments and the law. Now back to Psalm 97 too. Does the giving of the law at Mount Sinai have anything to do with God's righteousness and justice? Of course it does. The law is one of the primary ways that God's righteousness and justice are revealed. Isn't that cool how just a moment's reflection can bring a couple of confusing lines of poetry to life? And the following verses are going to pick up on this idea. It's going to continue with the Sinai imagery as well as the theme of God's judgment and justice. Verses 3 through 5 say this, Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The fire and lightning imagery here, they continue to call to mind God's appearance at Mount Sinai. And then we get this powerful image of mountains melting like wax. And we're reminded again that Israel's God, the Lord, is the ruler of all the earth, which is where the psalm started back in verse 1. I want us to meditate for just a second on that image of mountains melting like wax. Just imagine that in your head for a moment. Isn't that a cool image? I notice then the relationship between verses 3 and 5. You have fire burning up the Lord's adversaries in verse 3. And then the last sentence there, verse 5, the mountains melt like wax. So you have fire burning and mountains melting. It seems as though those two ideas are related, doesn't it? But again, what do mountains in verse 7 have to do with God's adversaries in verse 5? Well, we talked about this already. In the ancient world, elevated places like mountains were associated with divinity, with, with, with God, other gods. That's why people in the Bible tended to build altars and shrines and temples on mountaintops. That was where you could get closest to the gods. And in ancient Israel, these high places were associated with idol worship. Mountaintops were the places where Israelites made sacrifices to false gods like Baal and Asherah because they felt like they could get something from Baal or Asherah that they couldn't get from the Lord. And that's the temptation, right? Life isn't going the way I expected it to. Maybe God can't actually provide for all my needs. Rain isn't falling on my crops. Our enemies are advancing against us. The powerful prey on the poor. My bank account is dwindling. A relationship I value is falling apart. I don't look the way I want. I'm not popular. My career isn't going the way I expected. My health is deteriorating. Maybe I can't trust God after all. And that's how you end up at a high place, sacrificing at the altar of an idol. 
But the Lord, the God who reigns over the whole earth, fire goes before him and melts those high places like wax. Verses 6 to 7. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. These verses continue the themes of God's righteousness and his judgment. His righteousness is visible for everyone to see. And now the idolatry that was hinted at above when the mountains were said to melt like wax, it's made explicit here. Those who worship idols, who put their hope and their trust in something other than God, are put to shame. Now you and I, we're not uh, going mountain climbing to worship false gods. And I guess that's an advantage of living in Kansas, right? There are no mountains, therefore no idols. But we have our idols, right? Some of us worship our bank accounts or our 401k because it provides security that we're afraid that God won't be able to provide. Some of us worship our appearance or our health, and so we go to great lengths and even spend great sums of money to look a certain way. Whatever your idol is, safety, security, personal freedom, health, appearance, pleasure, power, it's all going to melt like wax. The language of being put to shame is strong. What are we going to feel when our idols burn up? Shame. Imagine trying to explain to God why you thought a stock portfolio would provide better security than he would, or why you were more interested in being esteemed by others than by him, or why you spent your life trying to climb a social ladder when all along he's like, you know, the ladder's not actually that tall, right? At least not in comparison to God most high. In verses 6 and 7, we see that the heavens proclaim God's righteousness and the peoples see his glory. And now in verse 8, Zion hears and rejoices. It says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. This is the place where the psalm takes a turn. Judgment here, which was bad news for idolaters in the previous verse, is good news for God's people. Zion, which which we can think of here as God's faithful people, Zion is glad because of God's judgments, because mountains melt like wax and worshipers of idols and images are put to shame. So yeah, the Babylonians have conquered their nation. Jerusalem is in ruins. Many family members died during during the war and survivors have been dragged away into exile in a faraway land. But despite outward appearances, evil does not have the final word, and it will not have the final word in our day either. Why? Because the Lord, our God, is most high over all the earth. There in verse 9 is our name of God for today, finally. Now, the ESV doesn't capitalize most most high, but many other versions do, Um, so I think it's appropriate to treat it as a name here. The Lord is most high over all the earth, not just one patch of land somewhere, and over all other gods that we're tempted to put our trust in or to give our allegiance and our loyalty to. And the good news for God's people continues in the final verses of the psalm. Let's read them. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. 
In these last three verses, attention is turned to the righteous, to those whose faith is in God most high. And here we're told to hate evil. And notice it doesn't say hate people who do evil. We can hate the evil that people do, but we should never hate the people themselves. These verses also tell us that God delivers his people, that, that he's the source of light and joy in our lives. And it ends where the psalm began, in worship, with a call to rejoice and give thanks, which reinforces the idea that our proper response to God Most High is to give him our loyalty and our worship. Now, if I was an Israelite in exile, and I'm reading these last verses, on the one hand, I would recognize them as a statement about God's character, that God is a deliverer. But I think I would also have to read them as a promise. From my vantage point, as an exile, I might say that God had delivered his people into the hand of the wicked, not from the hand of the wicked. After all, if God delivers his people from the wicked, then why are we in exile? I think there are two ways to answer that. First, Israel is not innocent. They're in exile because of their idolatry, because they've been worshiping false gods, and also because of their injustice. Throughout their history, Israel often failed to give God Most High their highest allegiance, and God finally gave them over to the consequences of their sin. Israel is not innocent. But second, and this is why verse 10 is not just a statement, but also a promise, they're still waiting on God's ultimate act of deliverance. The righteous, the the upright in heart, as verse 11 puts it, are patiently waiting for God to break back into history and to fulfill his promises to them. And they would wait a long time for that act of deliverance, which brings us back to where we started today in Luke chapter 1. The historical situation in Luke 1 isn't all that different from the context of Psalm 97. Yeah, Israel's back in the land, but they're again under the thumb of a pagan empire. This time it's Rome. And the Davidic monarchy still hasn't been restored. They still don't have a a king on their throne. And they were asking some of the same questions as the exiles were hundreds of years earlier. Is God really on the throne? Will he be faithful to fulfill his promises? And they would have faced the same temptations to put their trust in other things or other gods. Maybe the Roman gods are actually the most powerful. Maybe I should put my trust in Caesar since his armies are the ones that have conquered and even brought a sense of peace to the world. And then in Luke chapter 1, God Most High shows up again. His representative, an angel, appears to a poor young woman in the Galilean countryside. She's a virgin, but the angel says to her that she's going to conceive and have a baby. And this baby will be called Son of the Most High. And her son is going to sit on the throne and he's going to reign forever. The son will actually be God Most High himself. In order to save his people, God Most High had to become God Most Low. The God of Mount Sinai, the God of clouds and thick darkness, who melts mountains like wax, became human. God Most High became a vulnerable infant. He had his diapers changed He had to learn to walk and talk. He skinned his knees. He got sick occasionally. He had to learn a trade to help support his family. And he grieved the loss of loved ones. Just all of that, just like you and me. He came to the lowly, to to a people on the outskirts of the greatest empire the world had ever known. To rescue not just those people, but all people who would trust in him 
and not from the power of the oppressive Romans, but from the grip of sin and death. God most high becomes low to meet us where we are. And this is how God has always been. Look, look at these words from Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the paradoxical part of the name God Most High. God Most High doesn't stay up high. He comes to the lowly, to the lowly and contrite, and he rescues them. We have done and can do nothing to deserve that God would draw near to us, but he does it anyway. The melter of mountains is also the giver of grace to those who recognize that they need it. And the idea of God as most high comes up one more time in the Christmas story in Luke. On the night of Jesus' birth, a bunch of lowly shepherds, and shepherding was not a, a glamorous job in the ancient world, they're out in the fields with their flocks when an angel of the Lord appears to them and the curtain of heaven is pulled back and the glory of God shines on them. The angel says, a Savior has been born today, a Savior who's the Messiah, the Lord. And if you want to find him, go into the village and look for a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. That's your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord. And suddenly these lowly shepherds are aware of a great multitude of angels who are worshiping God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. There's the idea again that God is highest and the glory and loyalty and worship is due to him and him alone. Now, just a moment, we're going to sing the same song the angels were singing 2,000 years ago. But before we do so, let's remember that approaching God most high is, is an absolute privilege. But it also means we can't be hanging out on one of those mountains that's going to be melted. As we enter this Advent season, it's a great time to reset our hearts and to reflect on the name God Most High. Do we believe that God is Most High? Are we giving Him our highest allegiance? How much of our time and our hearts are invested in things that will melt away? Let's ask if we've put idols above God Most High and turn away from them. This Advent season, let's spend time in His story and not in Black Friday advertisements. Let's get more excited about the Most High God coming to meet us than we are about our Christmas bonus. Only God Most High is worthy of our highest allegiance. He is the one who reigns over all the earth, who judges evil and delivers his people by becoming low. And that is truly good news. Let's close in prayer. God Most High, you are the one who reigns over all. You dwell in clouds and thick darkness. Your judgments are just and our idols melt before you. In your presence, we recognize our own lowliness, our powerlessness, our insignificance. But God, we thank you that you did not stay up high beyond our reach, but that you came down to us. You lived a life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved. But you overcame death and offered eternal life to us. And so our response this morning is that of the angels in heaven. We echo their words that all praise is due to you, God Most High. 
Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Amen.